Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. That can be found on your pew Bible, in your pew Bible, on page 1,888. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Now you have received mercy. We're at the tail end of a sermon series that we've been doing here since the beginning of Lent, focusing on this passage out of 1 Peter. And the thrust of our time together has been focused on little metaphors that pop up throughout this passage. And I want to just briefly bring us all onto the same page by naming some of those again and some of the things we've talked about along the way. It's really, this passage really has two things that we'll talk about. One is, is our identity, and then we'll ask the question at the end of all this, so what? In this passage, the first phrase we mentioned was this one of living stones. And although we didn't dig into it too much, the, the living stone metaphor in this passage really has to do with us becoming the temple, a, a visible, tangible temple, a living temple in which Christ dwells. God is dwelling among us by the Holy Spirit. Something of our identity in Christ and what God is doing in us is, is making us collectively into a people who, who have a way of living together where God is saying, I dwell among you. I'm present with you. And it's visible. It's a visible place, much like a physical temple was. We talked about the phrase chosen people that comes up in this passage as well. And the idea with chosen people that we focused on is that, that we're actually chosen by God and there's a certain amount of God's affection for us. That God desires us. And we, we spent time in that service simply reading scripture passages and allowing those passages to, to kind of wash over us that reflected on how deep God loves us. That affection of God. 
and allowing us to remember that part of our identity is, is as those whom God has affection for. We picked up on that phrase, royal priesthood, as well. And we talked about how royal priesthood and the role of the priest was to intercede for others, to, to be in that space between God and the world around us. And, and we realized that it's, it's really an imitation of Christ. As we talked about we've been chosen in Christ to become like him and to participate in that priestly role of forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven us. brought up the phrase holy nation and the holy nation idea here is is that we have been made holy by God's presence uh, among us in Jesus Christ and and we reflected for a while on the image of the temple or the original tabernacle which was situated in the middle of God's people and that the people were not made holy by what they did but by God dwelling right in the middle of them. And then that same language of tabernacle is used of Jesus Christ, that that Jesus, uh, as the word of God, became flesh and dwelled among us, or or as the, the real language behind it says, he tabernacled among us, he tented among us. So God's presence among us is what makes us holy. And then last week, we talked about being a treasured possession. And how we are ones whom God treasures in Christ Jesus. These are things that point us to our identity. And what we get to in this passage at the very end is really a summary of all those things. It's, it's Peter trying to say, all right, all right, we've used enough metaphors. Let me, just, let me just say it this way. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's really driving home and saying, this is the core of your identity. I don't know about you. If someone asks you uh, about who you are and they're just getting to know you, what's, what's often one of the first questions they'll say? So what do you do, right? What do you do? We start that type of question really young. Maybe not baby young, but certainly by the time kids are in, in kindergarten, right? What do you want to do when you grow up? But we don't actually say it that way. We say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we put the emphasis on their job or their occupation, and, and we build our identity into our work or, or into our family relationships, I don't know how many times I've heard, and I'm sure others of you have encountered this as well, that you head off to university, and if you've been in university for more than two years, and you're not dating someone in a serious relationship, someone wants to know what's going on and what's wrong. Because your identity is, is so wrapped up in getting married. All right, I'm surprised I didn't hear an amen from certain sections of our congregation on that. But really, some, there's jokes out there that you go to school to get an MRS degree, correct? Right? We wrap up our identity in our work, in the, the significant relationships. And, and for some reason, if we can't answer those questions the way the culture around us wants to, we end up saying, we don't know who we are. We're still trying to figure ourselves out. That's the language we use. 
And Peter in this passage is driving home and saying, here is the core of your identity. Forget all that other stuff. The core of you, of who you are, is as a people who have received mercy from God. This is who we are. This is, this is what it means to be God's people. We are a people who have received mercy. That would be a different way to introduce ourselves, wouldn't it? Who are you? I'm one who's received mercy. It'd be a different conversation starter. It is a different way of looking at our identity, of beginning to understand what it means to be human. Because when we say we are people who have received mercy, we're also admitting right away we are a people who needed mercy. We're admitting that we're a people who were broken, who were sinful, who were lost. We can use whatever language we want. And we're coming to a place where our lives have somehow been changed or transformed at the very core of who we are. There's a little phrase in here, I highlighted it, I don't know how well you can see it on the screen, but it comes up twice here, but now, but now. There's actually a speaker one time I heard, and I've shared this before, I think, that that got up and said, I'm going to talk to you about but theology. And it got everybody laughing. It was in one of these high school youth group type gatherings. It gets everybody laughing. But it really is part of scripture. This but now theology. It comes up in multiple places. Perhaps one of the more famous ones is with the prodigal son story. Do you remember that story? A, a young kind of, kind of son who, who thinks he's got the world in his hands. He, he demands from his father his inheritance and packs up and takes off and says, I'm going to make it on my own. And after going out on his own for a while, we don't know quite how long, he wastes everything. Finds a place where he's struggling and he's starving and he's feeding pigs and he's not even worthy enough to eat the food the pigs are eating turns and goes back home and his father welcomes him home there's been an older brother at home who's been arguing been serving the father all along and he hears about this generous welcome his father is giving to his young brother who's wasted everything and and the brother says how can you welcome him back he's he's wrecked your name your reputation he's done everything that he shouldn't do and i've been sitting here doing everything that i should have done where's my due Where's my party? And the father responds with this incredibly gracious statement that puts us in this but now theology. We had to celebrate. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And we're brought into this storyline that's at the heart of the gospel. We are a people who apart from God were lost, but now... Because of God's grace in Jesus Christ, we have been made alive. But now. As a little aside here, just a sidebar. This is a simple structure for bearing witness or giving testimony. Sometimes people say, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk to others about my faith. This is a simple thing. used to be an angry grump. But God's been working in my heart. And now I'm much more patient than I used to be. I used to be one who cheated on my spouse, but now 
what God's been doing in my life, he's, he's actually restored my relationship with my spouse. I used to be one who, who cheated on my taxes. Didn't quite fill in all those details. But now, God's been working in my heart and changing me. Maybe your storyline isn't that dramatic, but there are little ways that God, through his Spirit, is making us holy. God's presence living in our lives. And it gives all of us a place where we can begin to tell our story through this but now structure. I once was like this, but now, because of God's grace in Jesus Christ, I'm like this. But back to this. Back to this identity piece. Back to the, the last five weeks as we've been talking through all these metaphors. And, and I have one question that has come up for me as I'm reading all this identity stuff. And I want to say to Peter, okay, I get it. I, I get who we are, but so what? Now what? What difference does it make? How do we live? I didn't ask John to read it, but the very next few verses next two verses really start to go after that. And, and there's no break in the original manuscript. We put nice breaks in them and paragraph headings and all that in our Bibles today to help us understand the structure. But sometimes those paragraph headings get in the way and they break up the flow of what's being said in the text. And Peter is spilling right from saying all this identity stuff about us being a people who have received mercy, and he goes right into these next verses. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is his response to that identity, that so what question. If we are a people who have received mercy, then abstain from sinful desires. There's an active part that we need to do in resisting sin in our lives. It's a brutally honest type of process. There's whole traditions built up at, around this where at the end of the day you take stock of your day and you sit before God and say, Lord, search my heart and know me. Test my anxious thoughts and see those offensive ways in me. And then turn me and lead me in the way everlasting. But it, it takes a humility and posture on our part to say, God, I've got sin in my life and I know that I didn't make it through this day without sinning against you. I need the change. One of the things we learn along the way is that that change quite often takes a community of people. And so it becomes important not just to, to be able to say these confessions on our own and have these spaces where God speaks into our lives and, and opens up our hearts before him, but also to be in a community with other people where we can have these rigorous conversations where people can look at us and say, you're full of it. Remember one time, a little confession space, I remember one time when our kids were younger, Josh and Nate were born, Tim and Karis weren't there yet, and Josh and Nate kept coming down out of bed. You know, you tuck them in, and then they come back down, and you tuck them in, and they come back down, and I snapped. I yelled. I mean, I really yelled. 
And my sister and brother-in-law were sitting there, and after I got the kids back upstairs, I walked back down to the table, and my sister said, you are out of line. Just nailed it. And her and my brother-in-law called me out on it, not just once, but multiple times, about the way I was speaking to my children and the tone of voice I was using. And I had to learn, wait a minute, I've got stuff going on inside of me that I'm not resisting, that needs to change. And it took community around me to start changing that. And that's the type of thing this passage is calling us to, to be in those spaces where we have people around us that we can start resisting or abstaining from those sinful desires. We can, we can have our lives transformed by the grace of God, not only in the abstract sense, but in the practical, tangible ways of living in our own homes, with our own families, with our neighbors, with the roommates and the people around us. Abstain from sinful desires. Take time during the day to sit down and say, God, search my heart. Look over my day. Show me those offensive ways. Be in community with other people who have the right and the freedom to speak into our lives and call us out when we're out of line. Abstain, resist, turn away from sin. You know, we have this confession time during our worship, and we talk about it as called a confession. One of the older languages around that is a call to repentance. And the idea biblically with repenting is that you've been walking one way. You've been walking in a sinful pattern. And to repent is literally to turn around and go 180 degrees the opposite direction. We create that space and we keep that space in worship to help remind us at least once a week <laughs> of this rhythm of acknowledging that our lives are not yet what they should be and we need to turn towards God. We are a people who have received mercy and because God has poured his mercy out on us, he has given us the space and the freedom to confess our sins, to resist the sinful living, and in fact to repent and turn 180 degrees from what we were doing and begin walking in a new direction. But the passage doesn't say just leave your sin. It goes on. It says, live among the pagans, such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. It's leaving a life of sin, but it's also entering a new life, a holy life, marked by good deeds. It's taking on new patterns of living that convey the goodness of God. There's a couple things in here that I think we need to pause on and just recognize for a moment. We have a cultural temptation. It started in Europe a while ago. It's been all through North America that that our relationship with God is a private thing. It's just me and God. Ever heard that before? It's just about me and God. And what Peter's saying to the church and what the Spirit's saying through Peter to all of us is really this. Your faith is not just about you and God. Your Christian identity is not just a private thing or a personal thing. In fact, it's a publicly engaged thing. 
It's not just privately confessing your sins. It's being transformed in such a way that you begin to live a very public life among others so that others can see the good deeds you are doing. I know we're Reformed folks and we get all antsy and uptight whenever we say good deeds and good works. There's a reason for that. Our good deeds and our good works don't earn us our salvation. They don't get us into God's presence. Remember the context here in which Peter is putting this. You are a people who have already received mercy. Your identity in Christ is already made secure. Essentially saying, now live like it. Live the good deeds that come from being shown mercy. Live the good deeds that come from being wrapped into God's grace. Live it publicly, out in front of others. Our identity is made known through our good deeds. There's something with that, and, and, and this comes up. It's a passage we'll touch on later this week. We'll actually come back to this on Monday, Thursday, for those of us who gather here. This is where Monday, Thursday gets its name. It's a new command, a new commandment that's being given, a new mandate that's being given. And Jesus, after he's washed his disciples' feet and, and they've celebrated that first communion together, they're getting ready to go to the garden where Jesus is going to be betrayed. And, and this is one of the last things he's saying to his disciples. Keep this in mind. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. They won't know you're my disciples because you can recite the Ten Commandments. They won't know you're my disciples because you can tell me the intricacies of the Heidelberg Catechism. Those are good things. They are good things. We need to keep learning them. They teach us and train us, but they're not the fullness of it. They will know you are my disciples if you put it into action in the way you treat each other. If you love one another, you've been shown mercy, allow that mercy to spill out in your relationships with one another. This emphasis on good deeds actually comes up in multiple other passages, but I want to highlight three of them for us to kind of show us how richly this is connected between our identity in Christ and the way we live or this call to good deeds. Ephesians 2.10. It comes after a stretch that, that's really famous. For by grace you have been saved, not by works. Right? That whole emphasis that we've been saved, not by what we've done, but as a gift from God. And the immediate response, the continuation of that thought is, for you were created in Christ Jesus. You were given this identity in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to be your way of life. God prepared good works for us to have as a way of life. It's the way we engage the world. Our identity in Christ, we are being given mercy so that we might do good works in the world. James picks it up this way. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's a call to a new way of life. 
James is saying, yeah, you can profess that you know God. In fact, he uses a pretty shocking statement right in connection with this passage. He says, even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. Belief in God, faith in God, identity in Christ is meant to transform the way we live. In this one from 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, speaking of Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whew. By itself, that would make me nervous, right? But it comes in the context of saying you are already in Christ. You have already been shown mercy. You have already received grace and forgiveness from God. Now live like it. Live the life that God lived among you. So, remembering that in Christ we are living stones. Remembering that in Christ we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession, a people who have received mercy. Got a couple questions for us. What are the good deeds God has prepared to be your way of life? It's a legitimate question for us. If we're going to abstain from sin and repent and turn, we know what we need to leave behind. We're willing to ask what those concrete things are that we need to embrace in the new way of life we need to enter in. James at one point says, religion that God our Father considers pure and faultless is this, to look after the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's not a bad place to start. Good deeds being those things that look after the people on the margins in our culture. There's other passages we could pick up. I'm not going to name them. I am going to bring up one other passage, though. Romans 12. Romans 12 picks up this whole cadence of us receiving God's mercy and in the view of God's mercy calls us to live our lives as living sacrifices. And right after that, it says, whatever gift you have, use it. If you have the gift of mercy, show mercy. If you have the gift of serving others, serve others. If you have the gift of leading, lead. If you have the gift of giving, give. And part of what it's doing is saying, doing good deeds isn't just about being a religious person. It's not about being a pastor and ordained and upfront in church. It's about the way you live your lives every day. And every one of us has been given different gifts to do that. And so if we're going to ask and answer or respond to this first question, what are the good deeds God has prepared to be your way of life? Part of what we need to say is, God, what gifts have you entrusted to me and how can I use them? I'm give an example, and Margaret doesn't know I'm going to say this. It's not to embarrass you. It's your 80th birthday. You're going to get attention anyways. few years ago, we did a scan of our neighborhood around church. And one of the things we discovered in, in doing this demographic study was the number of people who were living on their own or who were living in poverty and were in situations of being lonely. 
And Margaret came into my office one day asking, Pastor, I need to see you. She had seen this report, the, the conversations we had about it, and she simply said, I don't know what I can do in terms of going out in the neighborhood and addressing the poverty or and all that, but I'd like to knit. Is there a way we can do that? And Margaret, for the last several years, has been knitting with people. A couple times a month, they get together and they knit. And people from the community have come in and people have found a sense of place and belonging. And some of them who first came said, don't talk to me about the church stuff. I'm just here to knit. It was that experience of community that began to give them a place of belonging, where they experienced someone using a gift of knitting to create room for others to experience the grace and the peace of God. That's the level we're talking about when we start answering this. What gifts has God entrusted to us? It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter what, what gifts we have. We all have been entrusted with gifts. How can we use them? And the second is pretty closely related. It moves from that individual or that personal side of things to looking at us as a whole community. What good deeds is God calling us to do together so that our city and our world might be renewed in Christ? If you're part of this church, you're going to recognize some of that phrasing. It comes from our, our vision statement, the second half of our vision statement. First part is transformed by the gospel, transformed by that good news of Jesus Christ. Our city and our world renewed in Christ. And we're asking, what are the good deeds that will lead to our city and our world being renewed in Christ? What are we going to do together? We've said the CAP Debt Center. That's one of them. What else are we going to do? We've invested for years and years in our Monday night rhythm here of Friendship Club. We're going to keep doing that. But as a community, we're in a space where we begin asking, what is it that God is calling us to do in this community, in this city, throughout our world, to start bringing about this renewal? Our deacons are working on something, and I'm not totally going to steal their thunder, but they have something they've been working on to start putting together a way of helping us answer these questions. And I imagine sometime after Easter, we'll get around to doing that coming after these questions again as a community with our deacons helping us work our way through them. And finally, I guess this is really the heart of all of this. In all our relationships and in each moment, how can we live like Jesus? It's somewhat back to that, what would Jesus do? And some of us like to poke fun at it. I have myself. <laughs> it seems too simplistic. But at the same time, it's rooted in this idea in Scripture. We are a people who have been shown mercy by God in Jesus Christ. How are we going to show mercy to others? How are we going to take what has been given to us, and as one of the guys in our profession of faith class has been saying, how are we going to pay that forward? How are we going to demonstrate that to the world around us? The end purpose of all of this comes out in that passage, and I don't know if you caught that at the end. The end purpose of all this is that when people see the good deeds, they don't go, Margaret, you're a great person. They don't go, any of us, you're a great person. What they begin to see through us is the love of God. The love of God made known in Jesus Christ.
and that they will glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. God, we come to you with nothing but our brokenness and our sin. We acknowledge that we have made a mess of every good gift you have given to us. And we're sorry. We pray that you would help us to abstain from sinful living, that you would help us to repent and turn around and walk a new way of life. May you open before us visions and ideas of how we might serve you and how we might do the good deeds you have saved us for, that you have created us in Christ Jesus for. Lord, because of who we are to you and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, Help us to live faithfully, even as Jesus did. We pray this so that the whole world may come to see your love for us, your love for the world in Jesus Christ, and that they might come to glorify you. In his name we pray. Amen.